Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Good evening, everybody. How y'all doing? Hope you're uh, getting through the week. Lots going on. It's never dull. Uh, the love line's got your back. Giving you a little entertainment, some joy, some pleasure, and uh, learning, dropping some gems, learning some stuff, focusing on mental health. The rest of the world is triggering and complicated enough. <laughs> We're not going to add any more to your life. DMs, always open. If you've got a question for me, drop it in the DMs. Always anonymous, always confidential. Whatever you're worrying about, we got some answers for you. So that's on our Love Line IG page in the DMs. And um, yeah, we got a great show planned for you, though. We're going to be talking about dun, 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 romance. Ah, yes. We're going to be doing a little bit of a deep dive, understanding the breadth of creativity and diversity that is some of our relational orientations along with sexual orientations. And uh, just talking about rest, something we need more of. But I wanted to open the show by talking about an important topic. How do we talk to kids um, and those around us about things that we're seeing on the news? It's, it's really hard to not be in some way aware or participating in what's going on around us. In fact, I want people to be very aware and very involved. I think now's the time more than ever that we need to lean into the difficult news and things that we're hearing around the world so as to understand the problematic systems that are in existence and that we are a part of and that sometimes we're uh, you know, perpetuating, right? But we have these young ones, these little nuggets running around that need to understand what they're looking at and what they're hearing and so we as adults need to be able to talk to those around us, especially kids, about what they're seeing and what they're hearing, right? So I want to just start by talking about that. All these things matter because even if our kids aren't directly hearing or seeing the news, which more like most likely they are because of, you know, cell phones and social media and conversation, um, they're still impacted by the environment. So whatever's going on that we're looking at and hearing, that's impacting our mood, right? How we're showing up and kids are on the receiving end of that. And they're impacted with, by the family systems that they're a part of, right? Family systems. So kids' lives are touched by trauma on a regular basis. We talk about it all the time, uh, whatever worries they might have about homelessness, food security, financial security. But then we, kids are in, in dealing with homophobia, racism, transphobia, fat phobia, and fat shaming. So our kids are out in the world dealing with all these different things. And we want to give them the language to talk about it, right? Because the world, the work I should say about living in the world isn't about always ignoring or protecting. We do the best we can, right? But they're still participating and they're within it. We can't shield them and hide them away from everything. So a lot of these conversations aren't easy, right? But it's our responsibility. We have to take a proactive stance, especially knowing what's going on, that there's more of it coming down the pike. We want to meet it before they step into it right? So as much as we're trying to avoid it, we want to help our kids. So how do we step into this? Well, first off, 
think about what you want to say. You know, knowledge is power, as they say. And if you're aware of what you want to tackle, you get some information on the topic, that helps. So think about what you want to say. Practice, maybe run through and talk to others. If you're co-parenting with someone, maybe bounce it off your partner. How should we approach this? Let's be on a, let's, let's be a unified front, right? So plan, right? Then find a quiet moment or quiet space where they can focus and they're not distracted. And I always say it's about setting the right kind of frame. We don't want to, walking into it, already give them an experience of it. Meaning, just casually say, hey, can we talk for a moment? Right? Keep it really neutral. We don't want to um, get anxiety building before we even get there by saying, we have to talk about something serious or I have something difficult to talk about. Because then you're handing them ahead of time an experience. You're saying it's going to be this. And it might not be. We want to keep it as casual and as light as possible, especially because we're talking about some really heavy topics. So find a quiet space and frame it loosely. That's why I think it's always important to sometimes uh, for children talk about things while you're doing something. It allows a little bit of a buffer, right? It allows a little bit of space. And so maybe you'll have this conversation while you're actively cooking or cleaning together or going for a walk. Because sometimes just sitting down, that can feel really intense and also threatening. You know, you're sitting there in front of them, they're looking at you, you're looking at them. That can already spike the anxiety. But then you want to walk in and say, hey, have you heard what's going on in the news? Did you hear about dot, dot, dot? Find out what they know, right? What have you heard about this? Who's been talking about this? What do you already know? Then you want to go into sharing your feelings right? Because you're giving them language. You're also normalizing. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to feel scared. It's also okay to not know. And you're letting them know through this process that you are someone that they can come and talk to about things, right? You're letting them know that it's okay to talk about these difficult topics. It's okay whether you're gay or not to talk about homophobia. In fact, it's, it's vital that we talk about that because that exists. Whether your child's gay or not, they'll, they'll, they'll maybe perpetuate it and bully someone around it, or you train them to be an ally to help support their friends and eliminate that. They might be gay themselves to talk about the racial violence that's happening and white supremacy, whether your child's black of color or white. Everyone needs to be a part of this, especially because we're trying to build young allies. And so you have to normalize that these things are happening. Normalize the outrage. So share your feelings because sometimes children aren't able to put their feelings into words and you're going to kind of feed that to them. And then also give them the truth right? We're not trying to lie. It's okay to lean into some truth. And then we, we take care of ourselves. We take a break. We turn off the news. You know, we teach them a little bit of self-care. We, t- we, we do it for ourselves and we do it for them. These are difficult conversations that we need to be able to have. And unfortunately, there's so much of it going on around us, but that gives us an entry point. It gives us languaging. It helps us figure out solutions. So also have some of that in your back pocket because your child might say, but what do we do? And I think that's the final landing point is here's what I've done, you'll say to them. And here's what we can do as a family, as individuals. All right, going to take a little break. Coming up, we're going to be talking about rest. And uh, then we're going to be sliding into the DM. So stick around. Listen to Love Line with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and on Odyssey. All right, we're back and we're talking about rest. Yep, that's what most of us need. Rarely have I met a person that needs to be doing more. Although, of course get outside, move your bodies. We need to move our bodies as much as possible. So I don't want to negate, you know, remember saying we need more rest doesn't mean uh, we don't need to still move our bodies every single day, at least 30 minutes, ideally for those that have the ability and interest in health, uh, move your bodies. And I say that because I'm not about health policing. Everyone gets to decide what their life is rooted in, what their value system and ethics are. But uh, moving our bodies is going to be good for our physical health and our mental health as much as possible. Again, I talk all the time about, um, intuitive movement and intuitive exercise, which means you do what feels 
interesting to you, do what brings you joy, um, do it as long as you feel comfortable doing it. And when uh, it starts to lose its joy or, you know, it's overwhelming you, you stop. And that's the intuitiveness of it. There's no right amount of time, no length of time, no right way to do it. We talked about this this, uh, earlier in the pandemic where I said, dance, roller skate, hula hoop, go to the gym, do yoga, stretch, run, hike. It doesn't even matter. Just need to get that heart rate up and the body moving. But what we definitely need is tons of rest. Now, when we break down the seven kinds of rest that we might need, it really helps to illuminate where you might need to put some effort and attention, right? Because I think we only think in terms of physicality, right? So if I say to someone, do you rest? They'll be like, well, I slept eight hours. Uh, Maybe I took a nap. And it's like, well, that's one form. That's the physical piece. But there's a multitude of other layers to consider. And this might be why maybe your mental health isn't really functioning at the most optimal level. So let's break it on down. First type is the physical rest, right? And that can be active or passive. Passive is napping. Passive is sleeping. But there's ways that involve active use of our bodies that are also restorative. Because when I'm talking about rest, the better word is maybe restoration, right? Um, because it's not just about sleep. It's kind of like when I talk about intimacy and people will talk about how much they're around others. And I'll say, yeah, but intimacy is what you're doing when you're around them, right? You can say, oh yeah, I socialize with 15 people on Saturday at a party, but maybe you actually weren't intimate with any of them. And intimacy still often has this like sexual romantic connotation. No, there's platonic intimacy, intimacy between loved ones and family members, where it's about dropping into our depth, being truly present, sharing important parts of ourselves, right? Well, rest is the same thing. It's not just about sleep. Also, because we also know that you can often sleep and not have gotten the right kind of sleep or for the right length of time. So please check in on it beyond just the amount of sleep. So the first type of rest, like we said, is the physicality part. That's awesome. You can do yoga. If you want to be more active in your rest, you can do um, stretching, you know, things like that. But then we move on to the mental piece, the psychological piece. I love this. So um, are you feeling focused, right? Um, are you able to remember things, right? Because sleep is not just enough. So the mental piece is about attention. So if you feel like you need a mental rest, like you've gotten enough physical rest, and so it's not that your body's tired, it's your mind that's a little tired, micro breaks. Micro breaks are what's gonna help that. You don't need to um, go on vacation. You don't need to nap. You just need to take time, right? Every couple hours to defocus, and that's when people go to the bathroom. They go for a walk. Maybe they go to get a cup of coffee. It's just about letting your mind wander. That's the mental rest. We can't have directed attention for ongoing lengths of time. At least every two hours need a break. And that's why you know every two hours, um, if you're going to school or you're working, whatever it is, we need to power down for a little bit. And that's why classes take breaks, usually about every two hours. Um, and if not, you need to build that in because we can only stay focused and hold material in our minds with attention and and if we're not mentally resting and we start to impact memory right retrieval of things the logging of things so that's a build one i'm um, so excuse me it's a big one that builds um another type of rest is sensory rest now this is an interesting one we talk about sensory input in terms of sleep hygiene and getting ready to go to bed but remember, and you know, I'm trying to think in the context of us being at home right now, we may have the television on and or music on and or someone coming in and going from the room and or someone going to class. Maybe you're sitting there working. These things are happening around you. Your brain is attuning to a lot of these different factors, right? Directed attention. Um, 
So we're talking about lights, we're talking about computer screens, we're talking about sounds, we're talking about conversations. This can overwhelm us and our attention, right? So what you wanna do is you need to take time away from that. So just like we're talking about in in the course of a day, how much physical rest you get, in the course of a day, how much mental rest, are you constantly going from focus to focus to focus to focus, right? You can't be working all day, focusing on, I don't know, let's say reading scripts or on Zoom meetings, then come home, right, and be focused on, whatever your family members need, and then go right into emails. It's too much focus. Now we're talking about sensory rest, right? Uh, Do you have silence? How much silence do you have in your day, right? How much time do you have away from maybe bright lights? And these are all the things that help us get rested, but also not overstimulated. I'm very familiar with this because I'm one of those people where I get a lot of sensory overload. I'm always turning music down. I'm always turning lights off or down. I don't like crowds. I don't like loud sounds. I don't like bright lights. I have a lot of sensory sensitivity and um, integration stuff. And so I'm really thoughtful about that. But not everyone realizes that. We're all on that continuum. That overloads us a lot of ongoing constant sound. And if we build in these breaks away from it all, and this is where it can all get, all these can get met sometimes by doing the same few things. You know, uh, taking a step away from your desk or from your office and going into a silent room is like checking a multitude of those boxes, putting on headphones and going for a walk. I do a lot of things with headphones on. Um, But we need to unplug. Because remember, if we're constantly, let's say we're working all day and then we're on our phone, well, we're not getting mental rest if we're on our phone, we're not getting the physical rest, and we're definitely not getting the sensory rest, right? So sometimes just putting your phone down is the solution. Sometimes taking a break from individuals, putting on your headphones, listening to some soothing music, which is what I do, and go lay in the dark, stunning. Uh, All right, we're going to take a little break. When we come back, we're going to keep talking about the different types of rest to make sure we're uh, tapping into all of them. Uh, and then we'll be sliding into those DMs. So if you got a DM for us, drop it in our Loveline IG page. Let us know what you want to know about. We're always here for you. DMs are always open. And uh, Loveline, past episodes. If you want to check it out, go over to wearechannelq.com. Scroll down, look for my face, click on, and there they are. You can binge, post, share, re-listen. But uh, stick around. We'll be back listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new Channel Q and Odyssey. All right, we're back and we're talking about the different kinds of rest. Uh, before the break, we were talking about the physical rest. A lot of people understand that. They've got that down, right? But again, physical rest can be active or passive, right? It doesn't necessarily just mean napping or sleeping. It's sitting. Maybe it's stretching. It can even be some light forms of yoga, maybe some dance. Uh, then we talked about mental taking a break away from attention and having to focus. Then we talked about sensory, paying attention to your situation around ongoing sounds and conversations and lights and screens. Uh, Then we talk about creative rest. I love this. I like recognition of this. I, I talk to a lot of artists about things like this, even people that aren't in the arts, right? So this is important for people whose job or careers involve a lot of thought development, uh, creativity, product design. Um, creative rest kind of wakes us up and brings us back to our core self, right? I love that. And this is this is like this can include this is where we can talk about a little bit of the eco psychology I'm trying to talk more about, our connection to the environment. And what's so interesting about this is rest doesn't always mean time away from. Sometimes rest means the engagement of. And so creative rest for some people is rest, right? Through the entry point of being creative. It's not necessarily giving your creativity rest. And that's why going out into nature is what can really motivate, it can trigger development of ideas. I tell a lot of artists that are feeling stuck to go to go experience art, even outside of whatever their domain is. I get inspired by going and spending time in art or nature, even though my work isn't directly tied to that, right? So the rest is the creativity. 
right? We can use it in favor of, it's not necessarily time away. So again, spending time with the arts, so many different ways to do that. But we need to fold these things into our lives. I do some of my best thinking and my best resting while at museums and galleries, right? I follow a lot of art and artists on my IG. It inspires me. It, it shows me new ways of seeing the world. But again, it also checks the other boxes. It gives me time away from over-focusing or overthinking. Right? So it's really restorative on many, many, many levels. Then we talk about emotional rest. Now that is really needed. And that's also often about boundaries. Some people, parents, teachers, therapists, healthcare workers, we often really need to be thoughtful about that. We can't be caregivers and emotional supports all day long and then come home to it. And on our weekends, we need time away from it. And that's why I'm constantly setting those boundaries about how accessible I am emotionally. Where after working a long day, I'm not the first person people should call to process something they're struggling with. I've just been doing that for six to eight hours. I'm burned out. And so I set that boundary. And I have to say to some people, I'm sorry, I don't have you know the energy for that. Um, if you could reach out to someone else, that'd be great. Or maybe I can reach out to you tomorrow when I'm more rested or I have the day off or whatever it is, right? Because we have to check in on these levels of exhaustion. And so rest is, again, utilizing or stepping away from. But emotional exhaustion is something a lot of caregivers and people in the healthcare field very much understand. And so we have to be very protective of who and how and for how long people access that. Because some jobs require none of that. And so people have a lot of room and space for that and others that's all their job is and so it's very depleted and self-care is about you know setting boundaries around that um because remember people that are healthcare workers are usually the first people you know the first people that people turn to but emotional rest is important and that can be tied to socialization a lot of these have socialization tied to it right our socialization gets to be restorative it shouldn't always be depleting and that's why we have to make sure our friendships give as much as they take right um but you know, again, if you're in need of emotional rest, it's very possible that that's tied to needing breaks or rest from some socialization because the emotional piece comes from your connections with others. So sometimes you need a day to yourself. I, I often need that um, after work or after a lot of socialization. So really check in on that. Um, and then finally, spiritual. I think this is beautiful. Rest that comes in the form of spirituality. It's not, again, needing a break from. Uh, so it's the ability to connect to something bigger or more. It could be nature. It could be God. It could be kindness and compassion. Um, but it's stepping outside, and that's through prayer, right? That's through meditation. That's through journaling. That's through active imagination. But sleep isn't enough. And that's, I guess, what the whole takeaway is, is often it's not just about sleep. And that's why some people say, I'm so tired, but I'm getting eight or nine hours of sleep. Great. So physically, you might be getting all the rest you need, but what's going on in your emotional domain? What's going on emotionally in your life, right? What's going on spiritually, right? What's going on creatively? Do you have inspiration around you? The, the, create, the use of um, creativity to help us rest, aka restoration, might be, again, sticking certain pictures or objects around us. That's why a lot of people started bringing plants into their home, a way to reconnect, a way to use that as a resource, right? So always think in those terms. Um, what area of my life life might be getting depleted? Because again, exhaustion isn't always tied to the physical. You might have had a day at home where you didn't do much, but it feels so exhausting. Well, again, were you just overly emotionally present to people? And you know that whole list of things that we went through. So check in on all that, because all of that is part of the constellation that makes up our mental health. People don't always realize that it's um, as, as broad and diversified as that. Um, Eh, we'll keep talking about it, though, because that's where the boundaries and the self-care come in. That's what I'm always telling people. Tons of joy and pleasure and tons of rest. That joy and pleasure 
right? That's a big one. And I wish that was somewhere in that list because I think that that's another form of rest is just centering things in our lives um, as often as possible that just, yeah, give us a little smile, put a little joy in our face. Um, all right, y'all, coming up next, uh, DMs. Sliding in those DMs. And then uh, we'll be talking about sexual and relational diversity, labels, why they're important, why they matter, and just trying to some normalize some stuff. All right, stick around. You're listening to Love Line with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and on Odyssey. All right, we're back. Man, looking at an article here, it's going to get interesting. It's about all the colleges that are starting to uh, mandate vaccinations for students. Columbia, Yale just joined the party tons more and they will continue to roll out it's going to get really interesting there's a lot of people that are not interested in getting vaccinated and uh yeah we talked a little bit about the vaccination passport and how some airlines will man mandate um some kind of proof of vaccination some places to enter and some schools it's going to be a brave new world seeing how that goes i've talked about my opinion i think on one hand It makes sense and I get it. Uh, I know for myself, I am vaccinated and I don't want to risk getting infected by being around others that aren't. I think there's a collective responsibility where we have to look at how we impact others. I will always say that. Individualism is quite toxic. But I also don't like the idea of us creating a a way to have more second-class citizens. We already struggle as a culture to dismantle these systems that put some people before or ahead of others in terms of access and rights and so I'm, I'm worried about that. Um, I understand the insecurities some have around vaccinations. They don't trust you know, the healthcare system um, or the government. Uh, it's, it's gonna be funky. I don't know how that's gonna land. Uh, I'll be, I will be uh, anxiously and curiously tracking and seeing where that goes. But now it is time to slide into those DMs. Sliding into the DMs. This one says, hey, Dr. Chris. I'm trying to make everyone around me happy, but I often forget about myself and my own needs. My boyfriend is often planning things by himself for himself or with his friends. I don't, I don't generally get to see him that often, except if I make a plan for us, everything I seem to do is about making him and others happy. And I'm pretty sure I'm over the relationship, but I don't know how to tell him I'm afraid to end the relationship. Yeah. Ending relationships are hard. You know, I I snarkily but honestly say, you know, before we start dating, we have to be willing to be hurt or to get hurt. Most relationships wind up not being the last and final one we're in. Many people have to go through many before they end up with a serious partner. And um, it takes a lot of courage because there's no easy way to end a relationship without the possibility of hurting, disappointing, or letting someone down. So I'm glad you didn't ask that. How do I do it without hurting his feelings? It's like you can't. <laughs> if they're interested in still being with you, they're going to be hurt. and um, Or maybe not. Maybe they'll say, yeah, I think that's a good idea. I've been thinking that for a while as well. Could end that way. But we do it anyway because that's actually the compassionate thing to do is leave a relationship that you're no longer interested in being in. That's the loving thing to do. And I want to remind everyone, if someone and break, if someone breaks up with you, the only correct answer is, you know, whatever you're feeling, I'm bummed out, I'm disappointed, what's going on. But at some point you also have to say, thank you. Like, thank you for telling me. You can't be mad at someone for breaking up with you. We have to normalize more honesty and intimacy and transparency. We have to normalize managing our hurt feelings a little bit better than we, you know, traditionally have 
right? Because part of the anxiety about breaking up with people is how others have responded and also just not having a lot of practice being that in, that that vulnerable. It's really hard to say to someone, I'm about to say something that's going to let you down. I'm not interested in, you know, pursuing this romantically anymore. But I applaud you for not being people pleasing because that's in there as well. You're constantly putting the needs of others before you and this is a big radical act. This is a big radical act of self-esteem and self-care where you're going to say, I matter too. What I need, what I want, that matters as much as someone else's feelings. You know, but you're not doing anything bad. You're not doing anything harmful. Even though this person might feel bad, you're not doing something bad. So you have no responsibility other than to yourself and getting those needs met. But tell them and tell them as soon as possible. There's no need to keep carrying this forward, you know. Um, but it's hard and it takes courage. But I applaud you for being willing to do it. It's something that, you know, it's part of the stages of dating, you know. Um, be honest. Use the right words. Don't. Don't leave a cliffhanger. Don't leave the door open if you don't want to. Don't provide a hook for them to leave some hope on. If it's over and it's not something you're interested in doing, use those finalizing terms. If you're open for a friendship possibly, that's fair to say that, but just be very thoughtful about how you present it so that it's clear, it's honest, and it's accurate. Because some people when disappointed or still interested might try to hear future possibilities um, in there somehow, you know? All right, so we're going to take a little break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the diverse creative ways of being sexual, but also relational. Relational orientation. Uh, yes. Trying to put language to things, right? That's empowering. It makes it real. It also helps us build community and track down resources. So stick around and join us. You're listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and on Odyssey. All right, we're back and uh, we're talking about sexual diversity. So, you know, again, a lot of my topics come from uh, things that are sliding into my DMs, right? The DMs also on the Love Line AG page. And um, <clears throat> questions that come into my clinical practice, but also things I read. Uh, often, sometimes my best material comes from things I read where they got it dead wrong, dead wrong. So I want to kind of cover a topic that, is uh, I'm gonna honor on the front end that this can at time get hyper intellectual, very academic, but its purpose is to, if nothing else, <laughs> it's gonna be a very deep dive into sexual relational styles and labels, but its, its general purpose is just to really paint the picture that there's a lot of diverse creative ways of being relational and sexual. And I know fans of Loveline are like, I know we got that. But I want to kind of dig a little bit deeper because not only do I want the general population hearing this to just say, wow, there's so many different ways. I want to also normalize um, these different pieces and give terms to people that never were able to really uh, validate and legitimize how they were feeling, right? Often people will hear others talking about dating and relationships and romance and arousal, and they're not necessarily hearing their story. And they'll see all their friends kind of, you know, understanding, supporting, circling around, and they're feeling a little left out. And so I'm always trying to kind of give terminology because remember, language and words are power. And languaging and words either make us feel better and part of or ostracized, right? Because we often will shame or pathologize, right? Which means to make bad or to see as pathological bad. Um, anything that's diverse or creative, right? And so that further, further marginalizes people. And so I give these terminology to make people feel empowered. Like, that's me. I now I now know who I am. I now feel real. I now feel legitimate. I can now can also like build community. I can also explain myself to others, right? You know, wording and labels give form. They, they concretize, right? And I've helped heal 
a lot of people just through saying, this is what this is that you're talking about. And they're like, oh my God, I thought I was alone. Or I didn't know that was a thing. Or that helps me better understand myself. And there, from there, I can be better understood by those around me. So we're going to kind of swirl around a few topics, uh, I, I think, and work in very circular ways. But those who listen to the show know that. Looping, looping around, taking, taking detours. But you know what? We always get to the destination at some point, And we have fun on the way. So I was looking at an article, and it was talking about this, this concept of um, bi-romantic, being bi-romantic. Now, I know a lot of people roll their eyes and they go, how many terms can we have? Well, I don't know. Ask, ask people that study, you know, marine life. You have many different names they have for all these different fish? To me, they're all fish, right? It's like trees. That's a tree and that's a tree. But people that are into bird watching can tell you the distinctions between the birds. For me, with food, I'm not a chef. It is what it is. But some people, they can dissect the ingredients. Some people look at water and snow and they have different terminology for the different concentrations and shapes. I mean, you know, so you don't, you don't have to deep dive into this as much as I just want you to understand the wealth of what's going on in the world. So by romantic, it was this article and it was talking about something I think is very important. The difference between our sexual orientation and our relational romantic orientation, right? Now, what it's, what it's really calling out or drawing attention to is that there's a distinction for some people. Some, some people, okay, move through the world and the genders that they're attracted to or gender is also the gender or genders that they like to be in relationships with and have a romance with. But some people, they are at odds or one is distinct from the other. This is what I mean. So when we talk about sexual orientation, we're talking about what you are attracted to, right? Um, genders and behaviors and things that you are drawn to, things that arouse you. Um, so it's sexual orientation. And the key word sexual. You are oriented to these things sexually. But the things, and we talk about genders, the genders that you're attracted to or oriented towards or aroused by sexually are not necessarily for everyone the same genders that they are interested in having relationship and romance with. There can be a, a split, meaning someone could be um, bisexual, meaning bisexual, pansexual, sexually fluid. They might be someone who's interested and available and open to a wealth of genders sexually, but they might only be heteroromantic. They only date the opposite gender and form relationships romantically with the opposite gender. But sexually speaking, they're open to anyone and everyone. And it can be the inverse. There are some people that might be open relationally to a multitude of certain gender expressions, but sexually, it's more specific. Now, that really f kicks the door open for a further discussion of what, what could be in play and what it could mean. For instance, someone might be in a relationship with someone and say, you know, I feel very relationally content with this person as my partner. I like coming home and watching movies with them. I like living with them. Ah, shoot, we got to take a break. <laughs> All right, hold that thought. We're going to take a little break. And when we come back, we're going to keep breaking this down. Relational sexual differences and distinctions out in the world. Join us. Uh, you're listening to Love Line with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and Odyssey.
Okay, we're back. And uh, before the break, that was like the ultimate tease. It was the most honest tease in the whole world. Uh, I was really trying to reduce this complex topic down to this idea that there's our sexual orientation and then there's our essentially relational orientation and that they're not always the same, that someone could be sexually attracted to a multitude of genders, but relationally speaking, they only date the opposite gender or they only date the same gender. There are some people that are interested in having sex with any gender expression, but they only date people of the same gender or they only date people of the opposite gender. So they're homoromantic or heteroromantic. Homoromantic means they date people of the same gender. Heteroromantic, opposite gender. But their sexual orientation might be different, right? And I myself at different times have fallen into that where sexually speaking, I'm quite sexually fluid and pansexual. I'm open to having sexuality and engagement with all gender expressions. But relationally speaking, I tend to only date one specific gender expression. There's a distinction. Now there's some couples that are thinking, wow, that starts to make more sense because there's people, and I've seen this before the break, that are in a relationship with someone and they're saying, I love coming home to them, I love living with them, I love traveling with them, I am, I am in love with them, we text all day long, but yet I don't feel, we don't have a sex life. I don't really feel a lot of passion or chemistry. I, I think they're attractive, I love them, I enjoy them, the passion's not there. Well, there's a difference. For some people, there's a difference between relational and sexual. And it might mean that you are just powerfully relationally compatible and drawn to them, but sexually you aren't and you weren't. Maybe it's based on gender, maybe it's not. So you can make a lot of different distinctions. That's also where a lot of asexuality comes in as well. Some asexual people will say, I am attracted to absolutely no gender. I have no sexual attraction. I'm attracted to no one. But relationally speaking, I love relationships. I love dating, right? I love intimacy of closeness in terms of proximity and conversation. This asexual person might say again, I'm asexual, so my sexuality is attracted to no one. But again, relationally speaking, I <clears throat> love spending time with someone, texting all day long, cohabitating, going on dates, traveling, maybe building a life and a family, but sex, nah, I'm good, right? But then it gets even more complicated because asexuality isn't just, I don't like sex. There are people that are asexual that are sex repulsed, sex indifferent, or sex favorable. Oh yes, this is why I love sexology. So let's break that down. If someone's asexual and they're sex repulsed, it's what it sounds like. I will date you, but I am not interested. And in fact, I'm turned off by sexuality. So we will not have a sexual relationship. Or they're sex indifferent. Huh, I could take it or leave it. But if it's important to you, I'll do it. I'll do it to be close to you. I'll do it to make you happy because I'm indifferent about it. So it's consensual. It's just indifferent. And then there's some people that are more sex favorable. Yeah, sounds good. I'm not necessarily attracted to it, but I, I, I like the release. I like the other benefits it gives me. Uh, food metaphors are always my favorite. I haven't been using them enough. I use them a lot in my clinical practice. It's kind of like food. There are certain foods that I'm repulsed by, and I don't care who, where, when, why, or how, it's not going in my mouth. But then there's foods I'm indifferent around, where if I'm at a party and someone's like, hey, try, try whatever this is, I might be like, oh, okay, I'll do it for you. I wouldn't get it on my own, I wouldn't eat it on my own. I'm indifferent about it. I'm consenting to eating it, but it's not necessarily something I enthusiastically want. But sure, I'll try it. Yeah, yeah, it's okay, well done. And then there's the favorable, yeah, yeah, I'm happy and I'm drawn to that for you. On my own, I might not want, but I'm willing to do it with you and it's very favorable to me, right? It's qualifiers. And so we even fall into that. This just starts to give us languaging. 
Because again, we live in a world that really undermines the exploration of sexuality and even relationality. And we live in a heterocentric world where we just think most people are hetero. They like the same, you know, they have sex with the opposite sex. They date the opposite sex. Case closed. There's nothing more to it. And it's like, well, wait a second. A lot of the clinical issues I work with in my practice are made clear when we break down these distinctions. Is there a difference between what they, what they like to do sexually and what they like to do relationally? And what does that mean? Right? And then we have people that are asexual and don't fall anywhere on that sexual continuum, right? But yet will participate in sexuality for a multitude of reasons in service of the relationship or their partner. And guess what? Just like there's asexuality, there are people that are aromantic, which means they're not interested in any kind of relationality. They are possibly sexual, they're interested in sex, but they are not seeking a hetero romance, a homo romance. They are more solo based. Just like we talk about solo sexed. Some people aren't sexually geared towards partnered sex. They're more solo sex. They prefer masturbation. They want to date. They want to be in love. They want to be married. They're even sometimes maybe favorable or indifferent, sex indifferent or sex favorable, and they'll have sex with their partner, but left to their own devices, they're happy with sex with themselves. We have relational versions of that too. They're happy to be sexual with others, but they're aromantic. They don't necessarily need a relationship. I've worked with some of them. They want to live alone. They just want their friends. And if they feel the urge to be sexual, they'll go find sexuality, but that doesn't mean they necessarily want a relationship. And I say all this to normalize the experience for some people that are listening going, well, there it is. I'm happy to go out and have a lot of sex, but when people want to date or move in together and all that, I don't like to do that. Ah, I might be aromantic, but I'm sexual or the inverse. I never want sex, they might say, but yet I love dates and I love relationships. Oh, that's right. I'm asexual, but I do like dates and romance and relationality. And then there's some people that are neither, right? They're asexual and they're aromantic. They don't want sex. They also aren't geared towards relationship and they just love platonic engagement. They have tons of friends and none of these things are bad or wrong, but we assume they are when we think everyone should be hetero and wanting relationship and anything short of that is bad or broken. And we used to do that. We used to not believe in asexuality. I don't know why we thought everyone of course had to be sexual because there's no trait that everyone is. Some people are high, are social and some people aren't. We've talked about that. Some people don't engage or enjoy a lot of socialization, right? But we, we choose these cultural norms and we use anything that's distinct or outside of that as inherently being problematic. All right, we're going to take a little break and when we come back, I'm going to continue blowing your mind at the beautiful diversity and creativity that is relationality and sexuality. And we break down a few more things. You're listening to Love Line with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and on Odyssey. All right, we're back and uh, we're talking about all the diversity that's out there. Sexual orientation, again, it's this big constellation. It's far more than just the gender you're attracted to. It's types, scenarios, behavior, situation, all the things that turn you on. And as we're realizing, it's an active system, right? It's, it's ever evolving and it's ongoing and it doesn't just stop with gender choice. And as we grow and we have new experiences and we learn more, we start to evolve because as we're talking about, some people are realizing, maybe I'm aromantic, maybe I'm asexual, maybe I'm more solo sexual or solo romantic. And all of a sudden we start to move into these beautiful areas. We get confidence, we get community. Um, and uh, we're not making assumptions anymore. So again, we talked uh, last segment about the difference between sexual orientation and romantic orientation, right? How you can be attracted to one or more genders, but only romantically and relationally interested in one specific gender. 
We've talked a little bit about this before, but a little bit of a refresher. Some people are sides, meaning they're not a top and they're not a bottom. And I mean that for straight couples too, right? All straight men, all hetero straight men, all cis hetero straight men are not necessarily a top. Some of them are bottoms. They're passive. They're receptive. Oh yeah. And they need a female partner that's more dominant and top. Uh, gay couples as well. But then some people don't like penetration at all, which is shocking. We all think everyone enjoys and likes penetration. Nope. And for some people that are identifying as asexual, maybe it is just that you're not penetratively driven and you enjoy every other form of sexuality. That's possible too. And then you're a side. I don't want a top. I don't want a bottom. I don't like penetration, but I'm down for a lot of other things. And I work with some of those couples where they're content. It's more oral-based or based in other things, right? But then we have these other pieces that are a little bit more diversified, such as fray sexual. I love this. That's people who actually lose interest the more they get to know someone. This identity gets into relationships for romance, but the sex will stop once they get in there. And they do really well within hookup culture and open relationships. They're just not someone who wants that tight relational sexuality, right? And we talked about solo sexuality, which is someone who's geared towards sex with themselves, sex alone. We talked about asexuality. Um, And then we talk about things like demisexual, which is someone where sexual interest really grows as they start to get to know someone and form a deeper relationship. And this is where it throws things on its head because you'll hear these norms in dating like, oh, well, you know, if no one's kissed anyone in the beginning or sex hasn't happened, maybe they're not that interested in you. Well, maybe they very much are, but they're asexual and so sex won't ever arise, right? And you're not gonna be able to use that to feel desired because even though they're asexual, they might be sex indifferent or sex favorable, meaning if you initiate it, maybe they're still down for it. But yeah, you'll have to initiate it. You'll have to find your desirability and your acceptance through them in other ways, right? But again, debunking these early relational myths, if someone is demisexual, meaning sexuality occurs and grows in that interest as they get to know you, yeah, you might not get the normal signals on the front end and you have to just say, well, wait a minute, we keep spending time together, we keep reaching out, sex hasn't occurred yet, but maybe they're more demisexual where sex comes further down the road. Or like I said, the inverse, maybe they're frasexual where there's a lot of sex in the beginning and then down the road, you're like, why don't we have sex anymore? Well, because their sexuality is more about the newness and the novelty. And the longer they're with someone, the more it falls off. And so they do better, again, in open relationships or hookup culture. And with partners, we, we are left having to find worth and value in other, other ways and other sources. All of these different diverse ways of being are in all of us. It's just how much. And that's why for some of us, it's a gentleness that these exist in us. And that's why we don't really acknowledge them or see them. And that's why I like using words like sex repulsed or sex indifferent or sex favorable. We all can relate to that. Sex favorable is people that are sex positive. They're down. Sex indifferent are people where it's more neutral. They'll do it for the sake of their partner or they'll do it because it's a fun release or they'll do it because it makes them feel close, but they're not necessarily that into it. Still consensual, but it's just a little indifferent. You know, they're, they're willing. And then there's sex repulsed. People that just sex is not something on the radar for them. They still like relationships. They still might like a lot of affection but they're not gonna be that highly sexual person. And that's what dating's about, right? Taking the time to get to know someone and figuring out who they are and who you are in the relationship to them. And is that gonna work for you? But again, it backs us off of this idea that every relationship needs sex. It doesn't. And it changes, it goes through, it's a journey. It's gonna be there and then it's gonna be gone at different times. But all these terms are not meant to confuse, they're meant to clarify. 
And we shouldn't be surprised that something as complex as sexuality, that it would be as simple as just gay or straight. Nothing works that way. The culinary word doesn't work that way. There's different ingredients, different temperatures, right? Like I'm shocked when I watch a cooking show at how much can be said around what I think is just an apple. And they're talking about its ripeness, its freshness, the level of sugar content. You use this kind of apple for a pie and this kind of apple for something else. In my head, I'm like, just call it an apple. But to them, there's a depth and it matters. Sex is the same way. It's not simple. It's not supposed to be, right? It's, it's about us figuring out who we are at our core. And it normalizes that diversity. So we'll circle back and talk a lot about it. I feel like that was a big, that was a, that was a lot of uh, a lot of information at once. Uh, coming up next, though, we're going to be sliding into those DMs. So stick around for that. If you got a DM for us, drop it in our Loveline IG page. Uh, love hearing from you. Anything you want us to answer, we got gotcha. you. And if you want to check out past episodes, you can always do so by going to wearechannelq.com. Binge them, post them, share them. We'll be back. You're listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new Channel Q and on Odyssey. Alrighty, we're back. Now it's time to slide into those DMs. Sliding into the DMs. This one says, hey, Dr. Chris, my boyfriend and I, we've been together for almost four years now. We don't live together and we don't see each other that often, which is fine. We both like our space and we feel secure and trust each other. The other day, though, it was mentioned that maybe it's time for us to talk about opening up our relationship or maybe even making it more monogamish. I feel like that might be my partner's way of saying that they're not interested in being with me anymore and maybe breaking up with me because this is something that has never, ever been brought up or said before. I don't really know how to wrap my head around this. So my question is, I just either feel like maybe this person wants to leave me and is scared to say that or might already be cheating and just trying to find a way to make it okay and maybe even cover it up. Bum, 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 bum. Well, let me say this part. Just because they've never brought this up before doesn't mean that there's something problematic about it coming up now. Um, I, you know, I, I do laugh lovingly when someone says, you know, this isn't what you said in the beginning or that's not what you promised or you knew who, blah, blah, blah. It's like people grow and change. It doesn't matter who they were, who you were, what they knew or whatever at the beginning. People grow and change. And we have a right to ask for accommodations around what changes for us. No one can ever promise at some point in their life, how they'll be, who they'll be, or what they'll need down the road. And this comes up in my office. Some people say, well, you know, when we got together, I told you I was only interested in monogamy. Great, and at the time, maybe they agreed or okay with that. And now it's a year later, three years later, five, 10, 15, 20, and they've changed. And they're allowed to change. And we're allowed to ask others to change. There's no final answer. I've said this before, even marriage. You can't ever say, I promise to stick around forever. You can't, and you shouldn't, if it's become toxic, problematic, or you've grown apart. You know, and that we have to be able to sit in the honesty of that. We shouldn't be scared of that. As long as it's working, we should be in it. And if it's not, we should leave. And we should be good partners so that our partner wants to stay with us and work it out. They shouldn't be trapped because of marriage or monogamy. You know what I mean? So the, they've never brought this up. That's not meaningful to me. Um, and maybe they just want to break up with you. Ask them. This is another example where I say, go ask. I don't know. Hey, is you mentioning this open style, uh, uh, just you wanting to end this? Because most likely, no. Most likely it's, I want to be with you. And I want to be with you so badly because I value what we have that I want to create a dynamic that allows me to stay with you and to get all my needs met. And this person's needs have changed. Maybe they're wanting a kind of sex you've never been interested in. Maybe they're wanting diversity. Maybe they want more love in their life. I, I don't know, but you get to ask that. Hey, what does being open mean for you? What will it provide for you? You know, what is it you're seeking in that? 
And that's a really beautifully intimate and honest conversation. So have that, explore it. It's not something that has to be decided today or this week or this month, but sit with it. And what would it mean for you? Because that means you get to keep your relationship intact. It bums me out when people are just like, well, I'm just going to completely leave the whole thing if it's not going to be monogamous. Well, then you really couldn't have been that committed yourself or that invested yourself if you're not willing to step into growth or anxiety and you're just saying, I'm out. That's, that's not healthy. That's not fair. That's not mature. This person's trying to get all their needs met. And if it's not for you, that's fair. But find out what it's about. Find out what the meaning and value is for them. You know what I mean? Like you owe it to them, you owe it to yourself. You know, people put so much care and commitment into relationships, but then sometimes they're so willing to throw it away and it gets difficult or they're not hearing what they want. And as far as maybe your partner just cheating and wanting to feel better about it, well, that would be a good reason to open it up. If they realize monogamy is not working or not for them and they don't want to do it unethically, so they're saying, can we do it ethically? Yeah, that does make sense to me. That's what I advise them to do in therapy. It sounds like monogamy is not working. You're possibly harming your partner by cheating. It sounds like you need to leave the relationship or if you're interested in staying, talk about ethical non-monogamy and opening it up. That then does make it better. And, and I think that that's a reason, a good reason, you know? Our needs and, our needs and you know, desires change. That's part of growth. Everything changes, literally. Every time I see a client, year by year, decade by decade, people should be shifting and growing 100%. All right, y'all, we got to go. If you got a DM for us, drop it in our Loveland AG page in the DMs. Tomorrow's show, we're going to be talking about the uh, five to one ratio. Oh, yes, 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 yes. It's going to be something that's going to help your relationship out. So uh, definitely join us tomorrow to find out what that means and how we work with that. And then, of course, we're going to be talking about cheating. Yeah, controversial topic. Good stuff, though. So stick around and join us. And if you got a DM for us, drop it in our Loveland AG page and uh, check out past episodes. Go over to wearechannelq.com. Scroll down, look for my face, click on it, and they're all there. You can binge, share, post. Um, yeah, as always, y'all, thanks for hanging out. Try to get a little uh, self-care in. Tons of rest, joy and pleasure, and you enjoy the rest of your night. <laughs>